in the house. Let me hear your bark. Let me see your bite. Let me see your scars. You know what we about. Come see us in the yard. Hello and welcome to All We Hear is Purple, where the third or fourth most mediocre Husky football podcast on the entire internet. I'm Andrew Berg, and we have a special episode tonight, this week. I'm joined by UW Dog Pound's own Coach B. Coach, how's it going tonight? It is going fantastic. Glad to be joining here. Uh, too bad Gabe couldn't make it as well, but uh, glad to talk some Husky football. Yeah, so we're excited about this because uh, Coach is kind of the one of the more prolific X's and O's guys on our uh, website. If you've checked out his film studies and his game reviews, uh, goes in a little bit more depth than the uh, you know random BSing that Gaby and I mostly do, which has its place. I don't mean to denigrate myself in Gaby's random BSing, but uh, it will be a, a fun way to to take a look at this from a different point of view. So we're coming off the the you know uninspiring in some ways win over Cal, or it was super inspiring then super you know disinspiring so i, I want to break down kind of some of what you saw in that game but also as it applies to the season at large as longer trends uh, let's start off obviously with the offense which has been the hot button topic for most of the year the cal game was kind of a microcosm for what we'd seen on the season to this point we saw an expansive creative effective offense in the first half put up 21 points looked well on the way to winning then it shifted to a very predictable, stodgy, ineffective attack after halftime. Uh, we haven't always seen it divided first half, second half like that. We've definitely seen it divided that way by games. What are you seeing on the tape or what are you seeing when you watch these games and break them down that differentiates the good version of our offense from the bad version of our offense? You know, that's a pretty good question. I mean, that, watching live, it, you know, you get caught up in the emotion of and that's how most fans are watching it. Very few fans watch it, you know three or four times like I do, but my, I mean, my first reactions are always similar to everybody else on, you know, Husky Twitter or UW Dog Pound or what the like, where, you know, sometimes we think, oh, that wasn't a very creative play call or why, why are we doing it like this? But, you know, I'll, I'll give the staff some credit for, at least in this game, there were some creative play calls in the second half that I would attribute some of it to maybe some poor execution, not seeing a read or maybe just a good, um, call by the defense. So it, it's hard to say that there's a continuing trend in play calling or design or execution from game to game to game. But the one overarching theme that I'm seeing is that we don't really have a effective identity. It still looks like this is a team or at least an offense that is trying to find what works and you know, let that be their identity. We've, we've seen this pop up in past years, like the last year under Bush Hamden, where we would come out in I formation, try to be a power team. But then on third down, when it's passing situation, we'd come out in an empty set, which is totally different. Offensive line has to block completely differently. We're not getting enough reps in practice to really master any one thing. And it's, it's showing itself here again. Uh, I think everybody knows already, and there have been plenty of jokes made about, oh, run the damn ball with Jimmy Lake, right? Wearing the hat at the presser last year. And it looks like we're trying to, but I think they've fallen into this groove of, 
running the damn ball means we're going to run inside zone on you two thirds of the time. And everybody in the whole world that's watching knows exactly what's going on. So there's, there's different ways of running the ball and establishing that physicality, but we just haven't quite figured out or tried enough things to make it work. And quite frankly, it looks like the passing game might actually be the best way for us to move the ball. Yeah, I think that's an, an interesting kind of distinction. You know, we, we have we don't have an identity. I I think it seems to me that the coaches have an identity that they want us to have, which is what you were just describing, which is run the ball as often as possible and as <laughs> straight up the middle as possible. But they've been forced out of that because it hasn't worked. It's been, you know, two yards and infrequently even get to the cloud of dust. It's just not producing any uh, first downs is not producing any points so they've been kind of forced to just try other stuff and there hasn't been a lot of uh scheme behind the other stuff it's just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what works if you were in the position of the offense coordinator you know not necessarily at the start of the year but having seen what you've seen so far or seen what you've seen from the first couple games what do you think would be an effective identity like not necessarily uh, you know, the specific plays that you would call, but what kind of packages and what kind of game plan would you develop uh, for the strengths of this offense? I know it's going to change to some extent game to game based on opponent, but like if you were developing an identity, who would you want to focus on in this offense? That's a great question, first off. Um, and it's a, kind of an exciting question for me. My background, having coached a, for a time, was on offense and um, – offensive line coaching primarily and then I did a little bit of play calling as well so everybody came into this season talking about how the offensive line was going to be a strength of this team and I still firmly believe that we have talent there to make it work and to accomplish the goals and execute on the strategy or philosophy that the staff wants of being you know a strong physical running team I think we just have to do it more in the mold of how our roster's designed, right? Uh, we've mentioned this in the writer's chat before um, and discussed it several times where something that's popped out to me is we've really just been trying to run up the middle, downhill, kind of establishing a more Stanford-esque or Wisconsin style of offense. But our offensive line and the recruiting that Huff's been doing over the past few years has all has been entirely about athleticism. Um, in my recruiting breakdowns during the offseason, something that I noticed for almost all of these offensive linemen that we've been recruiting is they're all fantastic pulling linemen, either, you know, centers, guards, and tackles. All can pull, all can move, all have athleticism because we haven't really been focusing a whole lot on those humongous, you know, six foot six, 350 pound guys up until recently. So the guys that we have that are starting can generally move and we're just not taking advantage of that skill set. So back under Jonathan Smith or the Chris Peterson offenses, right? We've been running a lot of outside zone, a lot of counter where we have multiple linemen pulling. We had some screens getting them in space, you know, utilizing that athleticism on the offensive line would be a great step in the direction of what I think the staff wants to do. Personally, I would also want to focus a little bit more on the passing attack. We've seen against Arkansas State, and we've seen against Cal. We have some solid receivers when they're healthy. Jalen McMillan, my goodness, that's, that's an athlete right there. 
And we've been talking about who's going to be our receiver, you know, our next deep threat guy ever since John Ross left for the NFL. And I think both he and Romo Dunze have that kind of talent. So, you know, maybe we don't try to run it 50 times a game, you know, maybe we try to run it 30 times a game all over the field, outside, up the middle, power plays, zone plays, get some diversity here. And then also balance it out with closer to 50-50 split or maybe even lean a little bit more on the passing side and then taking advantage of those guys in space. Yeah, I think it would be hard to argue with that. I, I definitely think the the variety in the run offense is something that I, I, we'd all like to see more of. And it's not just that we're running the ball. It's that we're running the ball to the same place at the same time. Uh, it, and you touched on this a little bit that our – Offensive strategy seems to be at odds with our offensive recruiting uh, on the on the line, at least it's it was really discouraging in the last game. The rush offense was almost non-existent. Uh, You know, we've kind of seen it shift through as the years gone on. It hasn't been particularly good at any point. I I think the stat was we of the called run plays uh, of 30 runs. And I think some of those were uh, quarterback scrambles, but it was in the mid 20s for called runs. We ran outside four times totally yeah uh, which we, is we just were talking about this on the group chat uh the writers chat earlier and i think max had posted something along the lines of this on the season it was like 66 percent or so have an inside zone run plays right up the middle and minimal perimeter kinds of run concepts so so it, it, i'd be interested from your point of view how those two things interact like we we have we don't have necessarily the personnel to run inside zone uh, four times in a row to try to get a first down. Plus the defense knows it's coming. Uh, Do you think this would work better if we had different offensive linemen or we executed better on the offensive line? Or do you think, you know, are we just kind of, this is a, this is a non-starter of a game plan, no matter who's doing the blocking up front. I I still want to be, you know, that optimist that says we have the talent to make it work, right? And I think that it, it comes down a little bit on play calling. And I had been kind of watching some of the tape for the last couple of games. And what I noticed is we've just gotten very predictable. You kind of touched on it where the defense knows what's coming, not just that it's going right up the middle, but even down to the formations. And maybe it'll change throughout the season, but if, fans want to go back and watch some of the the past four games you can start to see a trend even as a casual fan of hey we're coming out with the the running back and shotgun aligned like he's going to run to the right and the tight end is on the left and we all know that that's going to be a inside zone or at least I've noticed that it's going to be an inside zone run play 80 percent of the time right for whatever reason we decide we are always going to run inside zone to the weak side of the formation away from the tight ends alignment. And if the tight end is aligned on say, let's just say he's the tight ends aligned on the right side, kind of flexed off the line of scrimmage without a hand down like an H back. And he, he's technically off the line. So he can move around behind the line of scrimmage. We're going to run zone slice. I mean, it's, so predictable at this point that the defense just has these keys where no matter how good our offensive linemen really are, we could have five stars across the board against a lesser group of five team. And if you have 
that predictable of an offense, you're not really going to find much success no matter what. Yeah, I think that's there's a difference between having tendencies and just having tells, you know, like if you know that oh, you send somebody yeah. in, in motion and two thirds of the time, that's going to mean, you know, a certain play. But the other third of the time, the defense is going to, you know, over pursue in that direction and it sets up a big play. I actually think we'll talk about this a little bit later, but that's one of the strengths of Oregon State's offense that they sequence plays that way and get the defense moving in the wrong direction and we just haven't done that like we we've certainly set it up like it got the defense taking the bait but then haven't really then pulled the the trick and gone in the other direction at any point yeah exactly and that's something else that i've kind of noticed is that we don't sequence plays or have you know we want to knock play calling and just say it's bad and it doesn't make sense but kind of taking a step further why is it bad our concepts aren't just aren't really meshing all that well you know sometimes we do so a good example of a series of concepts that do work well is we run zone slice and that's we run zone say to the left and then the tight end is coming around the back end of the play from the play side to the right and we've seen that a couple times it's pretty common and that sets up a boot action or something like that those plays the action at the line of scrimmage and the action in the backfield all look the same. And that's usually the ones where you see um, Dylan Morris go on a bootleg and then throw into the flat, right? We've seen that with Culp several times. Those plays all look the same and it's hard and it puts the defense in kind of a quandary as far as what's happening next. Inside zone, just straight up inside zone, we don't have a, a counter to that. So if they're selling out to do that, right, without the slice or the boot action, I mean, there's what are we setting up here? I kind of spoke about it a little bit earlier where under Chris Peterson's offensive coordinators, we ran a lot of outside zone with two tight ends on one side and we just tried to outflank the, te- the defense. And then the counter that we would run counter, actual the counter run play, pulling our tight ends to the backside, pulling a tackle or something like that to the backside because it kind of in- encourages the defensive front to over pursue in one direction and we attack them on the back end, right? The plays go together because, you know, it creates conflict for the defense. Um, We just don't have a lot of sequencing here. And even our play action doesn't always make a lot of sense. Like we might show that we're running a lot of shotgun run plays and then we'll try to do a under center play action or something like that, or vice versa. It's, it just looks like there's no rhyme or reason to how we're putting together these different play designs. Yeah, I think that that's you put a, a pretty fine point on something that it's it's been I think it's hard to describe in layman's terms how it just feels repetitive. And we you know, we may sit there and say, like, well, why don't we see more screens? Why don't we see more play action? And it's not just not seeing those things, it's that those are sometimes necessary so that the looks that we're using don't become so predictable. Uh, I, I do want to talk while we're still talking about the offense. We focused a lot on the running game and the, the play calling in the running game. One thing that showed up in, against Cal, and it, it feels strange to be this, uh, to be dwelling on so many of the failures in a game that we ultimately won in pretty exciting fashion. Uh, it, you know, yeah. uh, I, I don't want to bury that too much, but I, I do. I think the points that you're making are really good ones and they apply to the season as a whole and how we got to a fairly disappointing two and two at this point. Uh, one thing we saw in the second half uh, in the passing game when the it, it seemed like 
there was less pre-snap motion. It seemed like there was lo- few, there were fewer plays built off of play action or the the RPO uh, setups that that Morris seems to excel at. But there were a lot of plays where Morris was getting rid of the ball really quickly uh, and not really seeming wor- seemingly working through his progressions and just a lot of balls thrown away out of bounds. I guess that's better than the five interceptions he threw over the first few games, but. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's not putting any points on the board. Do you put that on the offensive line, not giving him enough time to work through progressions? Is it, you know, some combination of Morris or the receivers not clicking and understanding, you know, kind of intuitively where they'll be and what they need to do against certain coverages? Is this coaching? Does this go back to the predictability of the play calling, making it difficult uh, to, to, you know, have the right guy in the right place at the right time? Like, what, what do you, why do you think we started seeing this? Uh, and, and, you know, that was kind of at the core of how the offense stalled out and then ultimately forced us to win an exciting game in overtime when it looked like we might have a chance to just run away. I mean, that, that's a really great kind of question that's super loaded and has no real, uh, easy answer here. And I've kind of, I dove into it a little bit on Monday's coach's corner about how some of it could be coaching, right. Where even I've been at fault here when I was coaching back in the day where if you have a quarterback like Dylan Morris was last year, where he's making plays off script, he's running around in the backfield. He's, you know, saving the day against Utah last year. He has a little bit of that gunslinger playmaker mentality, right? Mm -hmm. That, that really saves the day if your offensive play calling is it spectacular. And, you know, he's on the far end of the spectrum of, a quote unquote game manager, but it also drives coaches crazy because they're trying to design a system that benefits everybody. And if you go off script, then it kind of throws it by the wayside and doesn't take advantage of the things that your play designs trying to accomplish. So I, I would imagine that some of it is coaching where I'm sure at some point, John Donovan's kind of taking him off to the side in practice. Maybe he had thrown a couple of picks or something like that because of that gunslinger mentality and probably told him, Hey, how about you stick to the script a little bit? And I think some of that, we saw some of that um, kind of pop up in the play calling uh, two weeks ago against Arkansas state. We ran a lot of RPOs and I kind of briefly touched on this last week in some of the, in some of a uh, film study and coaches corner where RPOs are quick trigger decision-making types of plays where it doesn't give Morris a lot of time to go off script. Otherwise he's going to get popped. You know, we're not pass protecting really. And Morris can excel at that too, but I think it was a conscientious effort to kind of take the, the, the gunslinging out of the equation that had led to those five interceptions earlier this season. And so, you know, I think it's part of that where I think there is a concerted effort to really try to like, make him a little bit more conservative, take what the defense is giving him and kind of instill that more game manager mentality back into him. But you do also bring up a good point. Pass protection hasn't been all that great. I broke down one of those in this week's film study. It was the major sack fumble uh, in the second half. I think it was like the third quarter or something like that, where he got pressure in his face immediately and that's pretty concerning if you have six guys trying to block six guys and 
you have no faith in your offensive line or running back or whoever's protecting for you to actually hold up against a blitz so you can at least get to your check down receiver, right? So maybe there's an issue of Dylan starting to see some ghosts in the pocket. He's trying to run away rather than keeping his eyes downfield and, you know, making that deep completion. Um, I broke down another play in this week's film study that should be posting on Thursday that, you know, we had some pretty good play calls sometimes getting receivers open deep, not just guys winning one-on-ones, but it was, you know, schemed up and you're, you can see there's some thought to manipulating the safety. And then Dylan got flushed out of the pocket. You had a guy coming wide open for probably a touchdown. I think it was Bynum coming over the, over the middle for a touchdown. It was, he was coming across the field right to left and would have been in a passing lane um, for Morris, but uh, Morris ends up taking off for a gain of 15. And, you know, that's nothing to complain about really. But again, you kind of want to, you know, if, if there's concerns about the play design and the play calling and it actually hits sometimes and you don't take it, that's just an opportunity loss, which I think is a way that we can describe the entire Cal game is just an opportunity miss yeah. that ended up being working out in our favor, but you know, we, we want to see some progression there. So uh, taking that all into consideration, kind of the connectedness of where the issues in the run in the past game are and like how the play calls aren't uh, stacking on each other and, and kind of helping each other, helping them grow on top of each other. If there were one or two kind of low hanging fruit things, I'm not talking about, you know, retraining, Dylan Morris's approach as a quarterback <laughs> or rewriting the playbook midseason or anything like that. But what are a couple like simple adjustments that you think would be helpful, like right away, like something that, that Donovan and the rest of the offensive coaches could install over the course of, you know, between the Cal game and the Oregon state game or over the bye week that would have a, a real difference uh, in the offensive output. There's a couple of different things that I think a lot of Husky fans have kind of touched on and that we actually did start to see against Cal and got me kind of hopeful that as the season progresses, we're going to see more and more of the playbook kind of get rolled out and that will be a little bit more balanced. And some of those things would be, like you mentioned earlier, pre-snap motion. We saw quite a bit this past week. Um, we put Odunzi in motion kind of a lot uh, and he's looking like a real weapon out in space in that sense. Um, actually utilizing some of those uh, deadly receivers in space in the receiver screen game. We saw a number of bubble screens. Uh, we saw pre-snap motion into a bubble screen uh, once or twice and kind of getting a little bit more creativity in that. It takes a lot off of the offensive line that some people have kind of trashed over the season, right? Because get the ball out quickly to the perimeter who cares if we're getting outmatched in the trenches it takes reads off of morris because all he has to do is catch a snap and get it you know out to the receiver and it leans on one of our more ex one of the more explosive receiver rooms in the pac-12 right so motion screen maybe some more sweeps always use uh sweeps on those zone run plays but I actually went back and looked at the stats and I don't think we actually ever handed off to either Giles Jackson or Terrell Bynum or any of our motion receivers on those jet sweeps this past week. And, you know, at some point defenses aren't going to be fooled on that. So we actually have to, you know, 
we try to fake things, try to create some misdirection, but we actually have to show some of it for them to actually bite on it, right? So some of those window dressing things that coaches always kind of talk about, but aren't always specific about that, those would, would help a lot. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I <laughs> That's been a personal pet peeve of mine, the jet sweep action, particularly in the Wildcat. The, they, I think they've. this is something that did, does go back at least to the Bush Hamden years, probably even, I guess, further back to the Jeff Lindquist, uh, Lincat or whatever we were calling it <laughs> at the time. I, I think we've run the jet sweep action every time we've had the that formation. Uh, and I don't think we've handed it off yet. Like, I think it's, it's only ever gone back up the middle. Yeah. It's kind of funny, though, that you mentioned that, uh, particularly out of the Wildcat, because I broke down McGrew's Wildcat touchdown this week in film study. And for whatever reason, uh, on all of our more traditional run plays with the jet motion coming across, Cal never bit on it. Cal never bit on the jet motion. But for whatever reason, we come out into the Wildcat and all of a sudden they <laughs> they bit incredibly hard, opened up a uh, awesome running lane from a crew and we get the touchdown. So yeah, I don't I, know. Yeah, I'm, I'm at a loss a for words play. sometimes. <laughs> I, let's, let's talk a little bit about the defense kind of from the same perspective, look at the Cal game, but also looking at the season as a whole, I think defensively it's, it hasn't been great. It hasn't been perfect. There's certainly problems, but it's been more linear. Like I, I feel like the issues on offense have been a lot of one step forward, two steps back. And we're just banging our head against the wall with the same problems. Defensively, it's, at least from my perspective, felt like the things that aren't working, we've tried to make adjustments to address them. And that might have, you know, plugging one hole opens up another one, uh, which felt to me what we were seeing against Cal. But at least we're trying things, <laughs> you know, we're, we're adjusting yeah. and we're, we're doing things differently. Uh, putting that a little bit more uh, specifically, we've had some problems earlier in the year, particularly the Michigan game. And it was definitely true against Montana too, where it just didn't seem like we had enough uh, meat up front to get any push against uh, offenses that wanted to run the ball. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it was making it difficult for our linebackers to clean up plays because there were linemen getting straight onto them and blocking them very easily. We switched to a more traditional three, four with, you know, instead of kind of the, the two, four front that we've, use with the the base nickel and it seems like that has at least helped against traditional running plays but mm -hmm. we also saw we weren't doing a great job holding the edge uh in either of the last two games there are a handful of plays where arkansas state was able to scramble for first downs there were a lot more plays where chase garbers i think if there's one thing that defined the cal game for me it will always be the memory of garbers just you know making one making great decisions on when to tuck it and run versus when to throw. But every time 100%. he tried to run the ball, he'd get seven plus yards. And it, that's just going to be burned into my mind. So I, I'm curious now that I've, I've ranted about that long enough. Is that just kind of a trade-off in scheme that it's by having that extra uh, kind of defensive tackle type lineman on the line, you're kind of trading off with some of the mobility to be able to contain the edge, or is it just bad execution and our outside linebackers should be able to hold him in the pocket a little bit more effectively. That's it's tough sometimes. And I've seen it um, kind of back when I was coaching in high school, the most difficult quarter or most difficult offenses to actually pin down were the ones with the mobile quarterbacks. I was on staffs that coached against Tua Tungo Vailoa, 
against Mackenzie Milton. And there are several others that are probably aren't as prominent as those two, at least. But they, you know, no matter what you do, you try to blitz them, they'll, you know, find the crease, either run for a first down or just bomb it over your heads in one-on-one protection. You drop eight, they have all day to kind of work the pocket. Your defensive coverage can't, you know, hold up forever. So it's always a little bit of a quandary on those mobile quarterbacks. And I'll give a lot of credit to Garbers just being a really good mobile quarterback um, and not really knock our own defensive personnel or scheme or anything like that. But uh, as far as kind of what you were mentioning, we're trying different things. I like this change to a three down lineman kind of a look. We've been playing a lot more, not just three down linemen, like true G tackles. I like Tui Tele in the rotation. He looks like one of our better, um, he looks like one of our best 11 defenders. And he's starting to find his footing a little bit more, as well as, you know, Taki and Tuli, they're looking pretty solid. I, I don't think that they're quite as dominant as guys like Vito Vea, Greg Gaines, and that's kind of part of the reason why we haven't been able to kind of work the same two, four, five base nickel looks um, as effectively as the 2016 teams or 2016, 2017 teams. But, you know, we're adjusting to the personnel and I think it'll work against both the traditional run scheme as well as mobile quarterbacks to a certain extent. Uh, But I think the biggest area that we could improve on is asking our inside linebackers, either Eddie or, Sermon or Hemuli or you know any any of our Tafisi any of our inside linebackers and having them maybe try to play a little bit more aggressively I want to see I'd like to see at least how we would look and how our defense would react to playing a little bit more aggressively triggering downhill immediately at the run uh, run keys trying to blitz a little bit more um, if people remember I think it was a couple of years ago Olafosio was one of the best run stuffers as well as one of the best blitzing inside linebackers in the conference. And I don't recall him making too many plays this year uh, in the passing game as a pass rusher. So maybe trying a little bit more of that, trying to throw off the offense. You know, it's kind of a cliche of defensive coaching staff. Well, we want to establish our presence. We want to dictate to the offense, you know, what we want to do. Uh, but there, there is some benefits in trying to do that right if we're playing more passively we're catching you know blocks you know something that I notice a lot is that our inside linebackers are being blocked at the second level and not plugging gaps right they're sitting back hoping that our defensive linemen can kind of protect them um, while they kind of diagnose the play and then run and make the tackle similar to what Ben Brookerman could get away with but he had great gains in Vita Vale, right? Yeah. So we might need to change the style of how we play. We might need to ask our safeties to be a little bit more involved. Um, several people in our writers chat, as well as on UW Dogbound have noticed, we're kind of playing a single high safety look, but the other safety isn't really in the box near the line of scrimmage. So like, what is he really doing? Like he's kind of playing in that no man's land of we might rotate back to two deep safeties, but we're not really going to. So I don't really know what kind of I'm doing out here. And they kind of end up just twiddling their thumbs, you know, just kind of yeah. away from the play. I think that fits. I, I think that's true of some of the inside linebacker play and some of the safety play that it it has 
this it, I don't think it's a it's an overnight thing. I think it's from my perspective, it's changed over the last couple of years fairly gradually to being more reactive. And I, I think that does, in a sense, probably help limit really big plays. But it also, we've seen, I mean, this defense has been death by a thousand cuts for the last, you know, we've had eight games between last year and this year. And there have been so, so many drives where you, you say, theoretically, if you can force a team to have to, you know, never get more than six or seven yards on a play and have to stay efficient and make plays for, 13 or 14 or you know even 12 plays to, to get points you'll take your chances with that except it keeps happening like we keep we keep having these plays with, with these drives where we say well you know a team's not gonna execute 13 times in a row and, and be able to sustain a drive but it, it, it sure does and we've had a lot of those uh i think cal's first two drives or two of their first three drives i guess after uh the first interception were like a 12 and a 13 yard or 12 and a 13 play scoring drive which is it shouldn't be happening, but it, it has right. happened a lot. Uh, one other thing, just on the defense, you know, tell me if I'm crazy about this, but I felt like Trent McDuffie's absence was definitely felt in this game because there were quite a few times in when there were situations where Cal got behind the chains where they went after Michelle Powell. And I think, you know, he, he looked okay, but it's just that little bit of space that McDuffie tends not to give up. And he's he's superhuman in his ability to stick to a, a receiver. Oh yeah. Uh, and it, it felt to me that we probably would have ended a couple of those drives earlier if McDuffie had been on Crawford. Uh, when instead it was Powell and just wasn't able to get off the field by making a contested catch or something along those lines. Yeah. Do you think? Am I overrating one defensive back, or do you think he would have made that kind of uh, difference on this game? Well, I'll, I'll preface everything I say after this with, I do think Powell did a fine job, bang up job, being a former walk-on, although that really doesn't matter at this point, but being a pretty young DB, pretty good job in his first start, right? Yeah, like, I think that's Don't fair. want to yeah, trash yeah. it. He was that, decent, yeah. Yeah, that being said, yes, I think that it, the game would have been a little bit more, a little bit less stress on our fans' part uh, if McDuffie had been playing. Uh, there was a play against Arkansas State on third down where McDuffie ran all the way across following motion on a third and short, tackled the receiver yeah. behind the line of scrimmage or at the line of scrimmage, essentially. And that kind of just was all-encompassing of what our best playmaking DBs over the last five or six years have done. They're not just great cover guys they are playmakers and i would say that you know to pigeonhole mcduffie as just a great cover corner kind of does him a disservice because he can make those plays he's he's a pretty good blitzer um when we call his number here and there he does break up passes he's maybe doesn't get as many turnovers as people would have hoped for a all-america type of caliber defensive back talent but he is physical in the run game. He comes up and runs the court pretty well. And so I think, you know, between him maybe making tackles for no extra yards after the catch or breaking up a few of those passes or playing some zone in the flat and not giving up some of those easy dump off passes that end up gaining 15 yards, right? Um, their long touchdown, I think it was just a dump off pass to the running back that ended up scoring a touchdown um, is a good example of that where 
just better tackling on the field not only eliminates big plays, but you know, creates positive momentum plays for us. Just overall, yeah, it, I think McDuffie's presence is felt in more ways than one. You know, even if it was five for five for 70 plus, you know, maybe McDuffie gives up uh, two receptions for maybe even 35 yards. It's the other tackling stuff too. And all those other things, benefits that he brings to the defense that kind of added value. Some, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah, I, I don't have to convince me McDuffie's greatness, and I don't think it's it's a slant on a slam of any sort toward uh, Powell to say that he wasn't as good as McDuffie because, you know, there are about 350 defensive backs in the country that you'd say the same thing about. Uh, let's take a, a quick break. There's great stuff. I'd love talking about uh, the X and o, X's and O's of this Cal game and how we got to this point in the season. We're going to take a quick break uh, for an ad. We're going to come back. We're going to talk a little bit about Oregon State and what to look forward to next week. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us. We are going to talk Oregon State and the trip down to Corvallis to visit the Beavers this weekend. The Oregon State Beavers surprised everybody with the domination of USC last week. It looked like they noticed early that USC was going to over-pursue everything defensively and kind of welcomed it and misdirected it the best they could. A lot of screens. Uh, a lot of uh, play action, a lot of moving things around as you would expect from a Jonathan Smith offense. So with that in mind, coach, tell me, what do you think, how do you think our defensive game plan uh, will try to react to the way that Jonathan, Jonathan Smith has built this Beaver offense? And do you think the same kind of uh, misdirection game plan for uh, Oregon state would get traction against our defense, the way it did against USC's? There's a couple of different things. Uh, well, first off, it was an absolute whooping. That that was kind of embarrassing for USC. Not, not to take away any anything that Oregon State did. They had a great game plan. They executed well. I thought that their quarterback, Chance Nolan, looked really comfortable for having started the season as, I think, their backup uh, up until about halfway through their Purdue game. But there's there's two different things that I think about this. One, I think we'll be better up front than USC will have been against Oregon State. So there's some, some reason to be optimistic. USC, kind of surprisingly, considering all the recruiting hype that they've gotten over the last couple of years, didn't have any depth at defensive tackle. So they were starting a guy, I want to say his name was Stanley. I don't want to butcher his name, so I'll just say it was Stanley, number 47, former <laughs> inside linebacker playing nose tackle at like 275. Yeah not ideal for any run defense really i think our depth is much better than that so we'll probably hold the middle of the defense quite a bit better but i will say that we will likely be susceptible to some of that same misdirection that usc also fell victim of oregon state kind of does what i i want to say that oregon state does what uh, jimmy lake wants our offense to look like they run the ball well i think they had over 300 yards rushing against um usc they run play action concepts that look like their run plays so there's some misdirection there they do a lot of window dressing i think they did a little bit of a handoff to one side spin around nolan yeah, through a receiver yeah. screen to the other side kind of a pretty athletic kind of a throw there that got guys looking one way throw the other way or they'll run 
a two back set out of shotgun, they'll motion a guy one way, hand off the other way, or vice versa, that they'll run play action one way, run motion opposite direction, and then throw a swing screen. And they just kind of keep hitting different parts of the field. They actually have a lot more concepts than I noticed we ran. Um, and considering that John Donovan's quote unquote pro style, it kind of surprised me that we ran so few concepts relative to all these different plays at Oregon State just Jonathan Smith just kept pulling trick after trick out of, you know, his hat. And it looked like USC was playing scared of, they were just confused. They didn't know where the plays were going to go, even if they saw the, you know, one formation five or six times already in that game. And I'm kind of worried that if we play the same sort of more passive um, style of linebacking or safety play that will fall victim of that as well. Granted, if we play really aggressively, that could work against us too. But I think it's worth trying something, kind of trying to throw off their timing, whether it's bringing blitzes, trying to throw off backfield motion and action, things like that. But I, I am a little bit worried about some of the, the tricks that Jonathan Smith has up his sleeve. I think that's totally reasonable. And I'm, you could probably simplify it a little bit more and say, you know, like you said, this is a team that ran for – 322 yards against USC and we're a, a defense that has at times shown a proclivity to give up a lot of yards on the ground. If a team's willing to stick with it, I, I you know, what you're doing schematically obviously factors into that. And, but I, like you said, one of the features of uh, Oregon state's offense is that they can do a lot of different things schematically. So if plan A isn't working, they do have a pretty well-defined plans B, C, and D, unlike what we talked about earlier with our offense, where there's I trust Jonathan Smith to have a backup plan far more than I trust John Donovan to have a backup plan. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, a few years ago, we probably wouldn't have been as enthusiastic about endorsing his uh, offensive game planning. (laughs) Uh, The one other thing I will say, watching that game, it was kind of shocking how badly out of position USC was. And I think you're right that some of it was just kind of being reactive and a little disorganized, a little bit scared. It's hard to get in a player's head, but the fact that, you know, they're two weeks into having an interim coach, they're probably not as well prepared. And even the the coach they had before that was known as somebody who wasn't great at getting everybody up and prepared for every game. Mm -hmm. You add all of that together. I, I think there's some, you know, valid reasons for why USC's defense just didn't look in sync. It seemed like at times the linebackers in the secondary were just playing different defensive sets. Like you'd have all Mm -hmm. the linebackers blitzing and the secondary playing a super soft zone and just huge pockets of space for Nolan to throw it into. And I know they don't throw the ball a lot, so you're going to have the the, uh, defensive front creeping up a little bit, but it, it was just very disorganized. And hopefully, you know, maybe we don't, Maybe we don't stop them entirely, but I think the 45-point outburst is avoidable if we're just a little bit more uh, organized. Um, I, I have some confidence that we won't let Quintoriano or whatever their tight end's name is being <laughs> yeah. wide open, you know, nobody within 25 yards of him for a walk-in touchdown. I, I would like to think we're better than that, but, yeah, I, I, I've been surprised before. Yes, I, I – it's crazy to say this because USC has so much talent, but it just seemed like they were so, so out, like outplayed and outmanned and outgunned in that game. Like they were just confused constantly. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the other side of the ball too, because, you know, for all the great things that we've said about uh, 
what Oregon State's put together offensively. The defense is still a little bit of a sore spot. Uh, not not mm-hmm. that it's been a miserable failure, but the lack of top-end talent has probably showed up a little bit more there than it has offensively. Do you think this is a week where we want to try to get the run game back on track against a team that isn't as big up front and isn't as uh, uh, powerful? You know, they they don't have the track record of slowing down run offenses in quite the same way. Or do we kind of like lean into what you were saying earlier that we have more, uh, our strengths have been in the passing game and we should build off of that to start? Like what, what, how would you go about game planning for this particular defense? Okay, so I, I think at this point in the season, it's we have to just embrace what's working, right? Let's go with let's go with the passing attack. You know, you look at the roster that uh, Oregon State has, and in their secondary, they have some length on the perimeter. I think that their shortest corner is like six foot tall, and most of them are like six one, six two, pretty tall guys. They move pretty well but I think they're eminently beatable I put, have full faith in Odunze and McMillan to take the top off of this uh, defense if they show press looks right to use some of their physicality I, I think that we could get the better of them going vertically as well as kind of some quick screens here and there that being said you kind of touched on it is their Oregon State's defense isn't great at stopping the run and I think that the amount of traction that USC's rushing attack got, despite being a quote-unquote air raid offense, is encouraging where, hey, maybe there's a couple of things that we can take away that worked on their end, right? Maybe spreading it out four wide in whatever personnel we want, right? We flex out the tight ends into the slot. We try to get some space, lighter boxes. Maybe we try to run it that way, banking on the fact that hey, maybe, maybe something will work like that. It, it doesn't seem like they have a whole lot of depth up front either, right? So if we keep trying to pound the ball, you know, up the middle, off tackle, out wide, running the ball side to side, getting them tired, we can kind of maybe pick on their lack of depth. Um, don't want don't to trash my guy too much, but I, I do know their backup nose tackle, Alex Skelton, former walk-on. He played inside linebacker for Punahou High School back in Hawaii at like 225 pounds and he's up to like 315 right now he's a little bit uh out of out of his element right there in the middle I think that we might be able to bully him if he gets into the game again hope he does well but I'm still a Husky fan you know I think everything's open uh, if we want to go with the play into our strengths, pass game should be there. If we want to play into the attack them where they're weakest, it doesn't really match up with our strength, but maybe hey, maybe something works. It is interesting. You look at the, the games they've played, and some of this just has to do with they've only played four games and only three competitive games if you take out the Idaho game. But Purdue, Hawaii, USC. Hawaii and USC are obviously not teams that want to run the ball very often. Hawaii or Purdue didn't run the ball very often against them. Like if you look at the, the breakdowns of these games, they're all pretty similar. Like their teams are throwing the ball about a two to one ratio uh, mm-hmm. over, over, over running the ball. And 
have been pretty successful. They forced a decent number of turnovers, but if we can control that, there's it seems like there are yards to be had through the air against this defense. It seems like this is destined to be a fairly high scoring game, uh, not yeah. you know some kind of eighty point shootout because we'll probably have some of those longer <laughs> drives that we talked about before. There just won't be yeah. enough possessions to get there. But it seems like reasonable to think that both teams will score kind of in the low thirties. What would you, if you're picking the game, uh, what would you, what pick would you make right now? I'll, I'll put my money. Uh, well, I think right now the spread is like Oregon state minus two and a half. Right. So I'll, I'll still put money on UW winning out. I think it'll be a fairly high scoring game. I think the over under is like 56 or something in that ballpark. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and you know, if USC can put 27 on the board against Oregon state and their offense while having great talent hasn't actually been all that prolific. I think we'll be all right. I think we'll score somewhere in the ballpark of around what you said, 30 points. Right. And it'll be strength on strength, their offense versus our defense and seeing which unit has the better of the other team. If we can hold them to, I I think it's reasonable to expect us to hold them to under 30 which is why I want to, you know, I, I think we're, I, I'll still put money on, on the Huskies. It's funny you say that because I, I had that running through my head all last week saying to myself, if we can hold Cal under 30, I think we win this game. And then we end up getting to 31 in overtime to win it. I took overtime to get there, but that was exactly the number that we needed yep. to, to get to. I, I think you're right. It probably for different reasons. I think Oregon state is better offensively and worse defensively. Uh, but you know, that requires our defense to play a little bit better. And Gaby said this in her uh, game preview last week, and I've kind of latched onto it that there's, you, you can't just make a prediction. You have to make a prediction for what happens if the smart offense shows up and a prediction for what happens if the dumb offense shows up. <laughs> and if the smart offense shows up, I think, what you said is very apt. I would pick us to win something like 35, 31. If the dumb offense shows up, we're not scoring 35 points against anybody. It would be, you know, we may not give up any more points, but it would be like 31 to 21. So I I think it all kind of depends on, you know, do we have a game plan that plays to the team's strengths? So I I think that'll make sense. Again, great stuff. Really interesting to get in depth on some of those uh, concepts and schemes. Let's wrap it up here. But as uh, we, you know, we do something at the end of the show where we plug something not football related. Is there anything you would like to recommend uh, that isn't just another football game to watch? Although there are a lot of good football games to watch. There are a lot of football games. I hadn't put in, I hadn't quite put enough thought into non-football thing. <laughs> I'll say it'll be a non-Husky football thing. Fair I will enough. give I'll give a shout out to my Lincoln Lynx high school football team. I've been following them since last year. I helped do some color commentary on their live stream. They're located right over the right over the I five from UW up in Wallingford, right off of Forty Fifth. Uh, great story. They had actually been a school around until like nineteen eighty one. Then they closed and then they reopened about two years three three years ago, fall of. Uh, 2019 and uh this is their second this is their second varsity season the first was the spring season uh i think this week they're playing cleveland high school down at rainier beach great story they you know i 
I'm just all about them. You know, that's probably my second, the, the second team that I follow as close as, you know, second tip UW. But uh, give them a shout out. Uh, you can live watch live stream at, I want to say it's metroleague-lincoln.org or something like that. And, you know, if you liked me on this, you'll find it hysterical trying to listen to me calling color commentary for high schoolers. So, you know, that's up to I you had, guys. I know exactly where, which school you're talking about because I've parked there to eat in Wallingford before uh, plenty of times, like to go to the Molly Moons on 45th Street in Wallingford. Yep. Uh, yep. I had no idea that the school reopened. I, I just Googled it while you were talking. Do you know, you, you may know this as a, knowing their football team, the the most notable alumni uh, or alum from the school, at least from the list that I'm seeing right now. I, when I first started calling color commentary, I had to do a similar Google search on who this <laughs> school was, um, especially not having been from around this area originally. Uh, I knew this, but I cannot remember for the life of me what it is. So right the this the name that jumped out to me was Don Air Coriel, the oh, San Diego Chargers right. coach. Uh, in yep. early days, Dan Fouts, Lance Allworth era. That's yep. I, I had no that's idea. Right. I didn't even know he was from Seattle. Very cool. Um, that's a, that's a great recommendation, even if it is mostly football related. I love it. I, <laughs> I will. And, and now I learned that there's a new high school in the middle of Seattle that I didn't even know was was open. Uh, I am going to recommend, I, I had something funny work out a couple weeks ago or last week. I finished reading a book. I had pre-ordered another book and it got delivered to my Kindle the day that uh, the previous book, I, the day I finished the previous book. So I was actually reading a new book the day it got released. I don't know if I've ever done that before, which is an incredibly nerdy and not interesting fact that I've just shared with everyone. The book turned out to be excellent. It was Colson Whitehead's new book, Harlem Shuffle. Uh, Colson Whitehead's become pretty famous. He wrote The Underground Railroad, uh, wrote The Nickel Boys, which are probably two of the more famous ones. But he's, I mean, he's writing these really cool historical fiction novels, kind of like not uh, not set, you know, it's historical fiction. It's not uh, an account of something that actually happens, but he takes a setting that's real and tells the historical themes through a story, which is interesting. And he's talking about some things that are probably undertold and underrepresented in pop culture, but he's also just an awesome writer. Like the stories are very gripping. And every time I've read one of his books, I get in the last, you know, 40 or 50 pages and I can't put it down. And I'm suddenly just uh, amazed at how how well he's woven together these different threads of his own characters and uh, also the social and political things going on. So highly recommend that book just came out called The Harlem Shuffle. And and hopefully that's something worth checking out uh, when you're done watching the Lincoln Links or listening to their radio play-by-play -play and color commentary. Any final thoughts, Coach, before we sign off this week? I might have to check out your recommendation right there. A little bit of a, a little bit of a nerd too, so... That kind of <laughs> sounds a like a, yeah, it kind of sounds like a book that might be right up my alley. So I'll have to check that out. Yeah. A little bit of a crime uh, detective kind of novel twist to it, but uh, also with the historical uh, element of it. it makes it very cool. All right. So coach, thanks for sitting in this week. Hopefully we can do this again in the future. Love talking uh, X's and O's with you. Let's hope that next week we can get into a little bit more uh, narrative storytelling stuff and bring Cody Pickett on the podcast. Although if we did that when Gaby wasn't here, she'd probably like literally oh, murder flip. us. Yeah, she would. Uh, flip. But we're ever getting closer to that. But good luck to the Huskies and Corvallis this weekend. Thanks for listening and go dogs. Go dogs.